Tell me about your writing process. Um, my big thing is that I things have to sit for me. I think this is the biggest mistake people make. You write something and then you should put it in a drawer and come back to it because only if you fall out of love with it and forget about it can you see what's wrong with it and how to improve it. How long of a cooling off? As long as I can. I mean, you can't always. But if I can let it sit for two weeks, I'm happy. If I can let it sit for six months, I'm even happier. Time is this crucial element in the creative process, and、um, I feel we sometimes we fetishize this particular skill of doing something quickly, and I think that's a mistake. We shouldn't. We sh- you shouldn't get points for being quick. You should get points for like. Arranging your life such that so that you can take the appropriate amount of time for something. Malcolm Gladwell is a stone cold genius and a hysterical guy, and an all around great guy. Every conversation I've ever had with him is just fun and enlightening. He's just a prince of a guy. No matter how much acclaim he gets, the humility still comes through. So let's go. It's the man, the myth, the genius, Malcolm Gladwell on Torre Show. You're a great runner. You run a five-minute mile. That is astounding. Well, in my,、uh, I, I'm injured at the moment, but yes, I have.、Um, I take running very seriously. How much do you run? How long? How often? Well, I'm old, so I can't run every day.、Uh, I run maybe four or five times a week at most,、um, and then how many miles? Longest run would be nine or ten, but mostly it's shorter stuff. Nine or ten. So how long? What? I'm just curious, what? How long does that take you to do your nine or ten, four or five times a week? I run my mileage probably at, you know, somewhere between seven and eight minute mile pace, and then my my long mileage, and then I might run a little faster if I'm running a shorter distance. So that my math is really bad. So was that like two hours, three no, hours? No, no, that'd be.、Uh, I'm going out and running at the longest. I'll do an hour and a half of running. Why do you love running? It's, a, it's one of the few times that I get some peace and quiet. Oh, you don't run with music? Oh no, 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 no. no See, no. I, I mean, I run with music, and、yeah. I get like amped up with the music, and that keeps me going when I'm tired. And you're like, no, no. No, I want to get, I want release and solitude when I'm running. Do you get the runner's high thing, or it's just different? I, I do. Yeah.、Uh, well, I really, what I really like is running. I. Belong to this track club, but I run with kids, people like teenagers. No, like people I call people in their twenties, early thirties, kids. <laughs> no, of course, as they、um, are. Yes, and、uh, that actually gives me a, a real high. Like running, I love doing intervals and speed work and that kind of stuff. But just running with kids、mm-hmm. gives you that. I mean, is、yeah. it like is it like a joy in the pain sort of thing? Because after a、it's、while, it's pain. It's not painful. It's a strong way. I mean, it's. It's taxing, but not painful.、Um, I like the kind of discipline of it. the The idea that you, the idea of, of pacing your of of of,、um, of pacing yourself over the course of a repeated series of、um, of、uh, runs is really an interesting problem.、Right? Yeah. How fast do I run the first of these? If we're going to do ten, you know, four hundreds. How fast should I run the first so that I can do all ten? Yeah, that's a to me that's a super interesting kind of question. <laughs> There's so it's like 
I mean, cause I play tennis, so there's, it's not just the physical challenge, right? I'm trying to figure yeah. out how to beat you. I dealt with the physical challenge earlier by doing sprints and running. And so now I know I can stand mm-hmm. out here with you for two hours, but you're just like, what do I need to do to get my body to do what I want you to do? Yeah, running is, a, you know, tennis is a thousand times more complicated than running. I mean, running is a much, the appeal of it is it's simplicity and purity. Yes. Um, whereas tennis is the opposite, right? It's appealing precisely because it's so, when you're good, it becomes incredible. It's like, a, it's like chess, right? It's yeah. like, yeah. it's hard. Is, is running the first sport, like, in the world? Probably. Probably. Like, who yeah. can run faster from there to there, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I think, yeah. Or, you know, dueling with stones and <laughs> things like that. God, you're, you know, I was going to go somewhere else. But the, the I mean, you've blown my mind as a writer so many times. But the David and Goliath story, um, which you completely upended for me and for, I mean, for so many people, mm-hmm. it was always like, well, David was, you know, this impossible uh, underdog. And you break it down like, no, 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 people of that era who could slingshot were really good, and as soon as everybody in the Valley saw, oh, he's a slingshot, oh, Goliath is toast. Yeah, right. plus the fact that Goliath is probably blind. Right. Uh, is, right. Uh, is, it's a little bit of an issue. Yeah, and, they, and David basically had a gun, right? I mean, it, it would be in, in terms of yeah, how- the sling, you know, the, the crucial fact is that, that we call it a slingshot, it's not, it's a sling, and the sling is, in the hands of an experienced person of that era, a devastatingly effective weapon. Um, so it's like, you know, David David essentially breaks the rules. He right. cheats. I mean, Why? another way of saying it. It was a sword fight. And he's like, I'm not bringing a sword. Right. I'm bringing a better weapon. Right. <laughs> right. right. So it's like, that's when you get that. Which, and he's, he's like, and I have to do that because if I if it is a sword fight, I'm going to lose. Right. No, I can't sword yeah. fight with this monster. Yeah. I mean, but this is the Malcolm Gladwell thing that you've done over and over. I heard the David and Goliath story a million times throughout my life. Malcolm comes to it, and I read you writing about it, and you've completely changed how I see that story and how I understand underdogs in general. And mm-hmm. you've done that over and over and over with so many issues. How is it that you're able to do that over and over? I don't know. I don't. I just. I don't know whether there's, there's a trick, um, or whether I'm have some special gift. I think it's just that I'm patient with these stories. So I'm writing a book now, which will come out next year. About it's really about Sandra Bland. Oh wow! Uh, and although it's only a little bit, it's a long digression, but it's a way of trying to understand what happened to her and people in similar situations, and it's. It's just a result of thinking. I just was really interested in that and thought about it maybe longer and harder than most people thought about it, as opposed to thinking of that as a story that's all about what happens on that roadside. I thought, well, what does this tell us about any number of things, about the way we train policemen, the way we think about, the way we interpret people's behavior, the way we, you know, it's a, um, so it's really a kind of methodology I have, not a, not particular insights that I have. I just have a uh, an approach to these problems that maybe is different. You definitely have an approach that is different than most folks. I mean, is it about sort of mining the academic journals to see like, oh, this idea I can use for something? Or is it, like, where is it in terms of when you talk about the methodology? Yeah. It's about, I was ch- chatting with this, my friend Jacob yesterday, we were talking about close reading. Um, and his whole point was in college, that's what he learned. That 
when you have a text, uh, very, very, very few people read the, a text closely. They read it to get the gist, and then they move on. And what he, what he learned in his literature class at college was, no, 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 pay particular attention to the word choice and the little detail. Right. And I do a lot of close reading. In the new book, for example, and in my podcast, Revisionist History, there's a lot of that. There's going back over something really closely and saying, no, wait a minute. Like, here's this weird phrase, or here's this thing that happens in on page 568, which, you know, everybody missed. There's a, in my book that's upcoming, there's one thing, there's a, I have this whole thing about the Madoff case. And there's, in the Sandra Bland book? Yeah. Okay. And there's a, a report done by the SEC on the Madoff case. And literally on page 500 and something, rather, there's this story that is bananas. Like, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, like, and, but you have to read all the way to five, page five. And, it, you know, half of it's in a footnote. It's like, you know, you just have to, you got to, like, sit down with this thing. And by the way, the first 510 pages are just so boring. Like, Why did you keep going? No, I just, <laughs> I just felt like it's got to be something. I just was, I was sort of, I didn't, you know, I was like, you start by flipping through and then you're like, oh, and then you see something and then you like go back and then you sort of get pulled in. And then, and then I reached that point where the story was and I was like, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I don't think it's a trick. I think it's yeah. your process and what you do and your joy of searching for mm-hmm. ideas and finding connections. And I never feel like, oh, Malcolm, that's a big leap. It's like, yes, that definitely connects to that. And I never thought of that. But of course that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you have created this body of work in your writing that is not just educational, but beloved. People love these books, right? Why is it that people are like responding to this intellectual, academic Mm -hmm. writing with this emotional love? Like, what are you putting in Mm -hmm. the stew that's making people love it? Because this is academic work, right? Some of, yeah, some I don't know. I've always wondered about that. I think, I think there's very little that's n- nasty in my work. And I think people, I'm usually honestly trying to understand someone, even someone who might be a villain. Mm-hmm. And I think people respond to that. That I don't, I'm not interested in, I want to get below the kind of surface reactions. And I think people appreciate that. Um, that's probably what they're, that maybe, you know, I, the thing I feel like I picked up from the world, I, I grew up in, you know, in rural Canada with two very gentle religious parents. And the thing I picked up from that world was the importance of generosity in how you view others. That mm. I felt that my parents always worked really hard to find uh, what was good about somebody. Um, and to kind of latch onto that. Um, and I think the, the Christian tradition as well encourages you to do that, to kind of forgive the nasty stuff and focus on what's uh, beautiful about other people, even when you have to search pretty hard. And there's a, I think there's a little of that in my writing. I'm drawn to 
uh, complicated people and trying to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, that's an amazing sort of gift if you're giving complicated or difficult people the benefit of the doubt. And I mean, it seems like sort of the whole Christian thing of like, anybody can be forgiven and absolved. Like, well, yes, I will follow that guy if any of us can. Such a, you know, not to turn this into Sunday morning, but like such a mind-blowing notion that any anyone can be forgiven, right? There are precious few ideologies in the world that were that have that generosity it's of approach. It's a great selling point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate marketing yeah. a, a tool, right? I mean, like, yeah. I'm not going to make you, you know, it's not going to make you taste good, right? It's yeah. going to be like, you're going to be forgiven like yeah. by the ultimate, like, it's amazing. You also do great at creating images within your stories. Like, I, like it stands out uh, to me, uh, to the end of Outliers, your mom, mm-hmm. she gets to go to the good school, right? And her twin sister does not, right? Right? And the opposite. Oh, her twin goes. Okay. <laughs> and my mom, my mom was always the, my mom was always the lesser of the two twins. Okay. So yes, her twin goes to the fancy school. Okay. My mom doesn't, and her twin and her, my my mom's sister, um, splits her scholarship in half to get my mother in. And this and this helps. Ultimately, lead to you and where you are, but like, yeah. I, it, you know, it's you know, it's it's uh, to create those images mm-hmm. and these characters within. There's several characters within Outliers that jump out at me. You know, mm-hmm. the the boy who who was brilliant but couldn't tell his superiors like, well, this is what I want, and like, well, you don't get it. Like, it's just mm-hmm. those those characters are really valuable. Yeah. No, I like I I find that, and you know, what's interesting is now that I've been doing all these podcasts, podcasting. Audio makes you even more interested in character mm. because that's really what you can do when you're telling a story orally. Um, you really can draw out the emotionality of character. You can paint a, a picture in a very different and in some ways more vivid way. And in a podcast, of course, you can play the tape of the person themselves so you can hear them. I mean, there's that kind of, there's all this sort of potential Extraordinary potential for storytelling and podcasting, which has changed the way I think about writing, actually. So, all right, let's talk about that. How has the opportunity of podcasting mm. changed what you think about writing? Because revisionist history seemed to me quite often um, he's taking what he would have done for The New Yorker and making it audio. Is that not exactly? No. What's interesting is it may look that way, but almost none of those stories, not almost, it's, 50 to 60% of those stories would never, that I do in revisionist history, would never work as New Yorker stories. Okay. Because they're too small. Okay. Um, or they're too playful, or they're too, you know, some of them turn on, uh, you need the tape. Like you need, like I remember when I was doing a couple on the early civil rights movement in season two, and I, held this, I did this interview with Vernon Jordan, and he told a story about uh, uh, a case, a very high-profile case in Atlanta in the 60s, um, late 50s, 60s. And you have to hear Vernon Jordan tell the story for it to work. Like, it would work on the page, but no, it's like it's him getting emotional 50 years later. Yeah. And— that incredible voice he has yes. and 
him, and as you hear him, it summons the moment, and you realize this is this, you know, in our lifetime, in, or in his lifetime, in Atlanta, Georgia, for yeah. goodness sake, like not some, you know, there were trials that were, you know, travesties of justice that just defy the imagination. Like, it's, but you have to hear it, and you have to understand it. He's telling you the story, and he was there. Yeah. You're like, holy shit, right? <laughs> we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Uh, you know, in Revisionist, we saw there is calm, intellectual Malcolm explaining something, and then there is passionate Malcolm. Yeah. He is angry and standing on a soapbox, and, and that Malcolm is very exciting. 
And when you were giving it to the college folks about this system does not make sense, mm-hmm. it was there it, it was three episodes, right? And it was so passionate. And you're like, yeah. you know, in the face of these of these deans, like basically rhetorically punching them in the face, and they were like, really. Nothing to say, but like I can't, you know. And there's brilliant people that can't explain their way yeah. out of it, and th- that must have been fun for you. Yeah, they're not. It, it's 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 rarely it's true that the provisionist history is much more. It, it has exposed kind of the passionate side of my, but it's never calculated. It's just that you're playing tape. Maybe I'm that way sometimes too when I'm reporting for my books, but you never hear my half of it. In a book, you put in what the person says in response. So, but now in all of a sudden with podcasts, you're hearing that the interview as it happened, the way it worked in real time. And so you're capturing all of this kind of emotion on my part, because interviewing someone is an emotional process. You're engaged with what they're saying and you're responding to it. And if you're not responding, and you're not engaged. It's a terrible interview, right? You've got to be there. And now, all of a sudden, I think people are just seeing well, what's been going it, on well, for... Just in terms of, of interviewing philosophy, mm-hmm. sometimes I wonder, if I give you too much emotion, you may retreat. Yeah. If you are sort of emotionally still, then I might inject it and you might mirror me. Mm-hmm. But if I'm really aggressively, with, with, the right, with the right person, if I'm really aggressively like, I really don't like what you are doing professionally... They may, like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm being attacked. I'm going to clam up. You know? I mean, I don't know. It depends. No, you're absolutely right. It's very, you don't do it all the time. But there are, and you don't do it the whole interview, and you don't do it with everyone. But there's, all, there's often a moment where, as an interviewer, you are, if you're doing your job, required to respond in some way. Yes. Whether it's being sympathetic, whether it's being angry, whether it's sharing um the comedy of something, a lot of it is in reminding someone about why what they say is interesting or valuable because you, I'm sure you see the same thing because you talk to lots of people. The striking fact about people is they rarely recognize what is beautiful or interesting in what they have to say because it's their stuff. Right, right, right. It's mundane to them. So simply saying, wait, what is... People need to hear that. Like they're like, oh, you're like, no, wait a second. That was amazing. <laughs> that was, that was, you know, yeah, that was amazing. Is incredibly important because they don't. It's just their life, right? Yeah. You know, and you're like, and the little bits. No one. I mean, I have people do this to me. I tell a story of my something from my life, and people stop me in the middle. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I don't. Understand. I don't say. Like, I don't. Doesn't strike me as being weird. And you're good in your interviews at making it conversational. Some of the questions are short. Some of them are just responses to what you said. And yeah. I find some people are like, my questions must be long or I'm not doing my job. Yeah. But sometimes a really short question is really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I, as I said before, I'm old. I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> I wasn't very good at this at the beginning. In fact, for the longest time, I thought I was a very bad interviewer. Um, I'm still not great. I've seen better People, you know, every now and again I read a transcript or listen to an interview, someone who I think is really a pro, and I think, oh, that's how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> who are the great writers you like? Well, I always give the same list. 
Michael Lewis. Janet Malcolm. Lee Childs. Lee Childs. Love to Child. Janet Malcolm is the best. Really? I just think. We read her in graduate school. Yeah. I think you sort of have to read her. If you want to be a nonfiction writer, you have to. I've read, I think, everything. Every book she's ever read, read, written. Um, she's a close reader, right? She's someone who pays attention to the specifics, the tiniest details of what someone has said or written or done. Or, um, and she's just a master at kind of making a story out of something that's not obviously a story. Right. That, to me, is the highest. And Michael Lewis does the same thing. Like, the man could turn, he could, he could turn a bag of groceries into a story. Like, it's just a, a kind of... I think of you and Michael and Stephen Johnson uh, oh, yeah. as doing a similar thing extraordinarily well, taking ideas, raising them up, breaking them down. Uh, mm. do, you, do you see that? Is there anybody else? Funny, I'm just reading group? Stephen Johnson's latest, um, Farside, Farsighted. Um, Yes, he, both of those guys are way more um, prolific than I am. So I'm slightly in awe of both of them. But um, That's okay. But they're... Uh, Allison was, what, two novels? That's okay. No, no, they're... Uh, <laughs> I can't believe you dragged him into the mix. <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, we, we get into this conversation a lot in music, right? Like, yeah. oh, well, he only released two albums, right? Jimi Hendrix is really like, what, three? Yeah. On the strength of three albums. Like, so what? If his three albums... Well, so here's an interesting question. How many... On music, how many do you? How much music do you have to make before you make the cut? So, you know, the, the sports analogy is clear. If Steph Curry misses half of his games this year, he can't be MVP. Right? Can't. Right. Right. Okay. So the same bar has to but be applied to music. Like, well, can, can you do one great album and be, and be considered a? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, look, Jay Electronica mm. embodies this argument for me within music. Mm. No official albums. Right. But there's tons of mixed. I have more songs of his yeah. in my iTunes than many artists who've released four, five, six albums. So, should, so he's though there's a body of work. Mm. So, do I need? Does he need to have had been stamped by mm. the music business, or to have your book published by the publishing industry? Well, that's a slightly to, different question because they have a body of work. What I'm saying is, if somebody came along, right. did one great album, and then we never heard from them again. Do they deserve a place in the Pantheon? Or do we care about longevity? longevity, I, longevity? I would say yes. What would you, what do you say? I care about longevity and productivity. I want to see more than one. It doesn't mean I can't enjoy that album, but I can't put them up with somebody. To me, there's something special about Prince and the sheer amount of extraordinary stuff, or something special Over about, Michael Jackson, you're saying? No, no, not over, because he was also... So are you saying the Rolling Stones are better than the Beatles because the Beatles were only a few years together no. and the Stones were... And I would say they're... No, those, <clears throat> I'm not going to compare those two. Both of them make my cut for... Greatest I'm going to say that the, the one album wonder, though, I'm trying to think of a really good example, I'm just not willing to... See, for me, greatness in art gets you a point. You made a great movie, you made a great album, you made a great book, you get a point. Mm -hmm. If you do something bad, that's not against you. No. Yeah, I but like, you. you know, There's many yeah. reasons why the movie, the book, the album yeah. flopped, right? But you may, if you made one great movie, you made one great book, one great album, you, that, that is great. I mean, you made a greater album than everybody else that year, or mm -hmm. everybody else that decade. 
you're the man mm-hmm. or the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, I don't need, I mean, I think there's different questions, right? Like who can do it the longest, right? That's an right. interesting question. And, and salute to Paul Simon and people who can do it for a very long time. Yeah, and people who make a turn. What, what really makes me think someone belongs in the absolute Hall of Fame level is when not just do they manage to produce multiple works of genius, but they make a turn. In other words, they show you, like you mentioned Paul Simon, he makes a turn in midlife mm-hmm. and starts to create music borrowing from a completely different set of cultural um, uh, experiences. That's super interesting to me. Well, Prince, you talk about the yeah. early career before Purple Rain is very black, funky, yeah. edgy, and then he turns to more rock idioms. And then after that, he sort of keeps changing each album. Mm-hmm. Um, so that... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's why I mentioned Prince in the beginning. To me, that's... That it's not just longevity; it's also this. It's also diversity. It's that, sure. that as they mature, you begin to see different sides to their genius. That when I can, when I see someone turning in front of me, then I'm like, oh my goodness! Now we're dealing with some, you know. I mean, I think about Azalea Banks, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever for her as a person, but she made two one two. It's an incredible record. Mm-hmm. She's made nothing else of value sonically. Mm-hmm. But I will always hold her in a certain esteem because she made 212, and that record is insane. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, she belongs in a different part of the Hall of Fame. Let's put it that way. <laughs> the one I, hit my Hall of Fame are... has many rooms, <laughs> and there's a room for the... the room for the one-hit wonders. A room for the one-hit wonders, and there's a room for the people who are like... I mean, there's about... Well, back when the record industry was was much bigger, I remember Lior Cohen saying there's about 10,000 albums released a month, right? And you have not heard, I mean, in terms of the entire that, business that when it was many? hot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all the labels, right? Yeah. And 99% of them you'll never hear of. Yeah. Right? So if I could make one album or one song that mm. breaks through and is mm. great, you've done something that 99% of the people failed to even do. You yeah. know, and we're like, how come you didn't do it five times? I'm like... He did it once, and everybody else couldn't do it once. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your writing process. Do you just do you sit there for hours? Are you a daytime writer? Are you a nighttime writer? Are you pen and paper? Are you straight to computer? I, go, I mostly write in the morning. I can write really anytime. And I write, I start on the computer, and then I print it out and work on paper. For There's something about... Seeing it on paper is very useful, I yep. find, um, especially thinking about structure and things like that. Um, my big thing is that I, things have to sit for me. I think this is the biggest mistake people make. You write something and then you should put it in a drawer and come back to it because only if you fall out of love with it and forget about it can you see what's wrong with it and how to improve it. How long of a cooling off? As long you? as I can. I mean, you can't always. But if I can let it sit for two weeks... I'm happy if I can let it sit for six months. I'm even happier. Like with the book I'm working on now, I've been, I started writing it right when I started doing my podcast. I do my podcast for six months, the book for six months, the podcast for six months, the book for six months. So after six months, I'm going back to it. And you just, if you've left something for six months, you so, I mean, this book has gone through each time I kind of radically rethink it because it's fresh. Right? It's, I've, it's, I, I, I read it like, did I write that? I mean, you know, or why did I think that? Or You did oh, the same I'm, thing with the essays? 
I always try to let something like sit. a New Yorker piece. You try to yeah, let it sit with with revisionist history scripts. I write them and then try to go on, move on, do another one, and then come back. But that I people don't build t- time. Is this crucial element in the creative process? And um, I feel we sometimes we fetishize this particular skill of doing something quickly, and I think mm-hmm. that's a mistake. We shouldn't. We sh- you shouldn't get points for being quick. You should get points for like Everybody. arranging your life such that so that you can take the appropriate amount of time for something. I remember very early in my career, I went to interview this rapper whose album was not that good, mm-hmm. and he said, "I did this in two weeks," and it was all I could do to not say. Why didn't you take longer? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it would have been better if you took another two weeks or two months. Nobody's rushing you. Yeah. But um, in that cooling off period, you are completely forgetting about it. You're not trying to read or educate yourself Some, to. <clears throat> sometimes. Okay. Uh, sometimes things will occur to me. Sometimes I'll, like there's a, in my new book, there's a whole chapter. It's gonna, the book's starting to sound really weird. But nonetheless, there's a little chapter about torture. Got really interested in torture. And uh, I had a whole thing written about torture literally two years ago. It's been sitting for two years. And last week, I was like, oh. And I completely added a whole section at the end of that chapter, which changes the chapter quite dramatically. But it was stuff that I just hadn't understood um, or thought about or kind of processed for a while, like, and also I stumbled, there was a really interesting book that had been written in the last year on this subject, which informed mm-hmm. the way I thought. So just getting started early and giving yourself time to think just gives you access to way more, much more possibility. And that's what you want to do, right, when you're writing, is you want to make sure you're, you have the maximum number of options available to take your story where it needs to go. And it's really true that different mediums, you will see the work in different ways. On paper, printed out, on the computer, you will notice different things about it. There, there are times when I've gone through five drafts on the computer, I printed out, and I'm like, how could I have never noticed that this sentence needs mm-hmm. to be changed? And yeah. I, I couldn't see that on the computer, but here on the page, I can see that clearly. And go one step further, then uh, when you listen to someone, the difference between listening to something and reading a transcript of it, that difference is so, mm. like I was talking earlier about Vernon Jordan, the transcript tells you something, but hearing that voice, that slow, low, kind of s- slightly uh, somber and also kind of m- menacing, like you can't mess with this guy, yeah. right? And they messed with him. <laughs> and the, that... That you have to hear it. Like, as a young man, here's a man who's devoted his life. I don't know why I'm talking about Vernon Jordan, but nonetheless, here's a man who devoted his life in large part to kind of the cause of racial justice in this country and was with a group of people who did made that same commitment. And when you hear him tell a story from when he was 24 about how someone messed with him, you understand psychologically for him why he chose that course. You hear it in his voice. And then, like, I can't even do it. That low, slow, and do, you know? <laughs> that's, like, good, that's good. You had it for a second. That and, then, and you're like, oh, my God, that's why, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't, on the page, 
That's lost. It's like, do you have a title for the bland book? Not really. Not yeah. really. I'm sorry. Um, we just had the directors of the documentary on the I show. I saw the I saw the documentary. I saw that you had that that they. they so I'm curious to what you what you, how you add this up. Mm. Do you think that this was a suicide or not? I don't have an opinion on that. I'm not interested. I thought, I'll be honest, I, I saw the documentary. I thought parts of it were very good. I was not crazy about, that's not, it's not fair. My interest in that story is different than their interest in that story. I don't think the issue is what happened to her after she's arrested. I think the issue is that she was arrested. Sure. Um, so I'm not. There, there are two, there are two issues. Two, yeah, there's two issues. We should be I'm safe in custody, yeah. but yeah. yes, she should never You're interested in the second. I'm interested in the first. Okay. Um, so. Did you know that she had been slapped? Did you realize that? Well, you can hear it on the tape. Yeah, I know. Because in the, and she says, she says in the transcript, she's like, I've forgotten the exact words, but yeah. basically she says, yeah. don't hit me or don't yeah. like. Yeah. So yeah, I knew that. I knew that. I, I mean, remember when this came out, nobody noticed that. No we talked about that. this endlessly on MSNBC. I mean, nobody noticed. He slapped her. He slapped her. Before he got her out of the car. Of course he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I saw that. If you, I did my close reading of the transcript. I'm obsessed with the transcript and the tape. Yeah, you could, it's like, and then she says, <laughs> but, you know, why'd you do that? Don't do that. Don't hit me or whatever. Don't hurt me. I think it's don't hurt me. I yeah. think that's what she says. Um, yeah, no, that's just the whole thing. Um, but do I think she committed suicide? I actually think she did. I don't think those guys, these, they're so disorganized. These guys that I went to, um, Prairie View and sort of prowled around for a while. And I, they don't, they, these guys do not have their act together. This is just a, you know, there's no grand conspiracy here. It's just, that's what's so tragic about it. It's just a, it's just a series of incredibly dumb, like, unfortunate, ill, badly thought out, badly trained, you know, race. It's just like, it's just the kind of lowest kind of stupidity that's going on there. Yeah. That's what's to me, is so heartbreaking about it. If this was some sophisticated conspiracy, it's a whole different kind of story. It's just not that. It's like, it's like small town Texas policing with this sort of hapless cop who doesn't know what he's doing and who's in the wrong place at the wrong time with a, with a bad philosophy of um, up against someone who's trying to, who's living, a, he has a, his life is a little precarious and is trying to, heroically trying to pull her life together. Did you talk to the cop? No one can talk to yeah, yeah. No one can, will, let, will let anyone uh, near him. Yeah. You talk to the sheriff? Uh, I'm not giving away my, my uh, it's all in the book. It's, You've told me a lot about this yeah. book, though. No, no, no. Am, am no, no, no. I'm, really, I'm super excited about it. It's unlike any book I've ever written before. It's a lot angrier. Um, okay. uh, and it's a lot, it's bleak. Um, not ultimately not bleak, but a lot of it is bleak. It's... Um, I continue to be stunned by how nonchalant we are as a culture about uh, police violence. Mm -hmm. um, a thousand people a year, civilians, are shot by, killed by cops in this country. Going back a thousand. You know, when I, so I was talking about torture, 
during and the aftermath of the of 9-11, this country tortured a series of terrorists. These are all people who were, in large part, terrorists who tried to like who had participated in or wanted to kill thousands of Americans. They were tortured, and with one or two exceptions, they're all alive today, right? We didn't even kill them. This act caused us to flip out as a culture. Congressional hearings. Right. There, there is a, I have at home, an entire library of books written about torture, about- Abu Ghraib. Abu Ghraib, what oh we God. did wrong. What does this say about Black us? Sites. This is a- Call Jessica Chastain, we're gonna make a movie. And movies, like the amount of hand-wringing we did over something which, I don't know, am I getting that excited about, upset about the fact that, I mean, it's a, I'm not in favor of waterboarding an Al-Qaeda guy, but whatever, he's still alive. He got over it, it lasted 15 seconds. Meanwhile. Thousand people are being killed every year by cops. Americans. Americans. Where is where is the where is the same level of outrage over that? I don't see. I don't. Is, do I have a library of books at home written by you know impassioned liberal academics about? The th- no, I don't. Do I? Are there ten movies being made about this? No. Are there? Have there been seventeen congressional hearings about this? No. What happens is there. There's a flurry of something in the news. We had a little year and a half window where we got upset about it, but then we stopped. By the way, it's still going on, right? We just mm-hmm. kind of, mm-hmm. now we, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we kind of moved on. Now we care about. I mean, I think there is, there is some greater consciousness of this. Uh, I, I, I feel slightly, there is a, there's a greater, con- not significant, and the yes. comparison you make is, is totally right. Yeah. I, I, I think there are, People who care about this issue, definitely on the left, obviously, in the cities, obviously, more than in the red states and yeah. on the right. No, yeah, we we have made progress. Some. Some. But, but yes, how- you're right. The, we as a nation are not significantly concerned about the killing of black men and some women who appear to the Fox viewer as, well, they're criminals, so what's the problem? Yeah. What, what happened to Sandra Bland is torture. Yeah. A lot worse than an enemy combatant being waterboarded, what happened to her was far worse than that. Right. A woman who did nothing. Right. Nothing. Right. Is pulled from her car. Right. Bewildered, thrown into prison, you know, thrown on the ground. Her whole life is turned upside down. I'm saying the level of psychological and physical distress that she went to is a hundred times greater than uh, some hardened Al-Qaeda guy who gets, you know, Sleep deprived for four days. How long have you been working on this book? On and off for a couple years. Is the bleakness and the anger partly a response to the the modern mood, the the post-Trump climate mm. where we are less hopeful, right? When it was Obama, we were like, things are looking yeah. upward, right? And now it's like, Jesus, this is this this seems bleak. So yeah, is it is it is it partly that? I think part of that, yeah, I think there is, I mean, obviously, I mean, these are, you know, if if Obama was in the White House right now, we would be having a very different conversation. Um, these kinds of issues would be, the public, the kinds of things we would be caring about would be different. At least you'd feel like the government cared, right, yeah. rather than the government yeah. turning its back to these real issues. Yeah, well, you, yeah, you have, the difference between, Eric Holder and Jeff Sessions is not trivial. 
<laughs> or, or I, Mark, I don't think Mark Whitaker or Mark Whitaker, I mean, or whoever, whoever, whoever yeah. the attorney general is at this moment. Who is at this moment? But yeah, no, I do think it's partly that, but also. But all artists one, have I had to change, this. right? All art, all of us as artists have had to change yeah. in this to this Trump era. We couldn't do, we couldn't look at the world the way we did when it was Obama, right? But here's a, I do want to say this though. There is a, an error that I think many. Uh, people on liberals make, which is in locating all of the what's wrong in America in the presidency of Donald Trump. The kinds of things that we're talking about here predate. Absolutely. And I, what I worry is we get so caught up in like what's going on between 2016 and 2020 as a result of this one man in the White House that we forget that the kinds of things that actually make a difference in ordinary people's lives in this country have nothing to do with the the ascendancy of Donald Trump. They have roots that go back sure. 100 years, and they are problems we have steadfastly ignored. And this, in some ways, the kind of sheer level of, you know, of um, euphoric outrage on the left over Trump is simply another distraction. It's just, it's just another way in which the we pretend— The outrage on the left is just a distraction? Not just a distraction, but it's like— if you pretend it's all about Donald Trump, you're missing the point. It's Donald Trump didn't, I mean, I hate to come back to Sandra Bland again, but like when people are pulled over by, for doing nothing by police officers in the name of better policing, that's not because of the fact that the Republicans control the White House and the Senate. That's because of sure. ideas about policing that go back yes. several decades that have much deeper root and will not change if we change the composition of Congress. They require a very different, much more kind of um, comprehensive approach to... Uh... What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. To social change. I'm, you know what I'm, I'm sounding like a Marxist. <laughs> I, I am. How did this happen? How did, the, how, how, did the, how, did the, how did like the conservative boy from rural Canada sound like a Marxist? But I sort of, I just, I don't know. I mean, 
it just goes deeper. Like you can't, we're, you, you have to, we have to stop this single-minded obsession with one man and understand that this stuff goes, you have to attack it at the core. Yeah, yeah, definitely true. Shifting gears, now you're doing Broken mm. Record. I am, yeah. Are you still doing Revisionist History? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So there will be another start. season of Revisionist History. Yes, yeah. And then, but now Revisionist History is very intellectual, Malcolm, mm. leading the world, telling you a story, introducing yeah. you to the ideas. It, it, this is, the uh, Broken Records is like Malcolm hanging out in the dorm with Cool Rick, like, Let's talk about that band you love. Next week, we'll talk about the band I love. And, yeah. you know, just roll the Super mic. Super fun. Just, just, just press record and see what happens. I love, I, I, have, a, I have a total fan's reaction. And I'm, I, I, I suspect it's the same for you. Just hanging around, listening to musicians talk about music. It's just like the best thing ever. Yeah. It's just like, you can't beat it. Like, yeah. So I was like, that's why I wanted to do, to do Broken Record. It's just like, like, you know, next I'm doing a, I, the show that runs next week is um, I went to Nashville and rounded up three like old school composers, uh, mm -hmm. songwriters, Don, Don Henry, Don Schlitz, and Bobby Braddock. Like from the 70s, like the first kind of the, the guys who, who led the songwriting revolution in Nashville in the 70s. And I just turned on the tape recorder. They all had their guitars. And I was just like, I mean, at the end, I ain't even, I'm not even there anymore. They're just like chatting and playing songs. I'm like, like who doesn't want to listen in? Like, right. It's just like the most fun, you know, that kind of stuff is like endlessly. Is there a dream interview, like a dream musician who you want to talk oh to in this? Such a good question. I, mean, I, want to, I want you to, when I, after I answer, I want you to answer. You, I want you to give me yours. My uh, dream musician? Yeah. Well, you go first. Who's your oh dream? Oh, my God. I go first. <laughs> you, I was starting to think about <laughs> who that might be. I mean, I mean, it's hard to say one. Um, I have had many great interviews with Jay-Z, and he uh -huh. is very good at understanding his process, understanding why mm -hmm. his music and his rhymes are working, mm -hmm. and talking about his work in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. So just to have him again to be like, hey, can we break down this rhyme of yours? And he's, he's, he's very much like, you see what I did there? And he does that in the music sometimes when he's mm -hmm. like, you see, you see the, the couplet that, you see the triplet that I just made there? That was dope, right? And like, and he's, he's definitely, because it's mm -hmm. definitely like, the guy who was not thought to be intellectual or or really probably that intelligent within his community when he was coming up. So mm -hmm. now that he's getting props for his mind, mm -hmm. he's definitely happy to be like, you see, you see what I did there? You see how yeah. smart I am? Yeah. Is, so he's he's fun that way. I mean, he's a, he's always a great interview. Yeah, yeah. I would like to do. Uh, this is going to sound weird. Dolly Parton. Okay. Uh, She's kind of a genius, too. Only sounds weird because folks of a certain age think of her as an actress and don't really think of her as a musician, which is where she first blew up. And she's, a, she's an insane musician. I mean... Yeah, she's a country legend. She's a country legend. She's yeah. a songwriting savant. She's a... Interesting, but isn't Dolly Parton, of all the people in the world, he's a Dolly I think it'll be fun. I, I also think she would be a blast. Yeah. I, I, think, she, I think she doesn't... I, I don't think she... She's not censoring herself. I feel like she would just be... Honest and hilarious, and you would get a little glimmer of any time you can give, do an interview. Just like when you're saying about Jay Z, that what is appealing to you about interviewing him 
is that you get a little, you get a glimpse of his intelligence, right? You see that shimmering thing. And you're like, oh my God, like, do not underestimate this dude. I feel like the same thing would happen with Dolly Parton, that we'd get 10 minutes in and the shtick would kind of fall away and you would be like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> right? That's, and that's what I want. I want that moment because I know it, you know, you know you're going to hit it eventually. If yeah. you just do your job, you know that all of a sudden they're going to like, I'm trying to think there was someone recently, because a lot of celebrities, the really, some of the really, really good ones play this game where they hide their light under a bushel. They don't want to show you the fact that they're in control back there, right? And they play the little game with like, oh, and then all of a sudden you see, I had a... <clears throat> Uh, a friend of mine this is, is this is this screenwriter, Steve Gagan. He mm -hmm. won an Oscar. At, and he... Uh, what did he win the Oscar for? He won it Blind for... Um, train? Uh, the Train Spotting? No, 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 no. He That movie about drugs, about the drug trade. Um, uh, I can't remember. Traffic? Traffic. Okay. Traffic. Michael Douglas. Yes, film. exactly. Um, Stephen will do this thing. Stephen is this charming, incredibly charming, hilarious... Bon vivant, tell a million stories. And every now and again, though, you'll ask him about screenwriting, and he'll, you'll think, oh, he'll just be his graceful, lighthearted self. And he'll go, his, he'll, go into, he'll switch into this mode where he'll go, do, 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 do. And he'll like, okay, here's the six things that's wrong with that script. Do, 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 do. And you're like, holy shit. And you're like, that is so true. And you're like, <laughs> and then he's back, and then he snaps out, and he's back to charming. You know, easily, you know, you're like, oh, Steve. He's like, you're like, no, 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 no. This dude is on top of everything. It's all happening back there. And he lets you in every five, five minutes out of every hour, he'll let you in to what's really going on. And <laughs> five that, minutes. That's, that's what you want, right? That's, you know, the great interview is where you get that five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't watched your master class yet, but I will. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to touch on a couple things that you throw out there. You talk about the imperfect argument because the perfect argument is too easy. What does that mean? Yeah, you want somebody to, the things that we really, the ideas that, that we're drawn to and want to play with are imperfect. They don't work. And that's a why. argument to make? It's like, uh, well, it's like there's two things. Well, there was a moment 10 minutes ago where we had that, where I said, Trump is a kind of distraction. And you're like, wait a minute, distraction? That was an imperfect argument. It's not really what I mean, but I got your attention. And then we played with it a little bit. I understood your point, but I disagree. Yeah. But I still see your point. But then I, th I feel like we worked it out. Then that caused us to have a conversation where I amended my position and I was looking at you because I was like, can I, he's right, it's not quite right. Can I say it in a way that you'll... Right. That, so we did, we did a little mini version of that in like two minutes. But this is what the writer, what young writers have to deal with. You will not be there to explain that sentence to the reader. The reader will just be like, what the fuck does this mean? No, but the reader right? won't. I think the reader will do that. Sometimes in a good piece of writing, that's what you will do. You will then lead the reader, and it's fine. Like I always tell the story. I was in Houston a couple weeks ago. A woman comes up to me and says, I'm in some coffee shop. I'm in a, 
like the white part of Houston, like upper middle class Houston, River Oaks. A woman comes up to me in River Oaks and says, I love your podcast. I disagree with virtually everything you say. And I was like, first of all, it's fantastic. That's the best thing anyone's ever said that's to me. That's great. So that's it. The arguments I'm making in that revisionist history are for her all imperfect. She's not buying it. But there's enough there that she keeps listening, right? Rich white woman from River Oaks is like tuning in to hear Vernon Jordan talk about civil rights. She objects on some level, but she's still listening, right? That's what I mean. So what's, it's not, I didn't deliver, she then probably listens to some Rush Limbaugh and gets all, see, you know. See, a lot of young writers want to please the audience. Yeah. And you're like, no. No, no, I don't no, want to. No, no. They don't, some of them will be pleased. If some of them are not disagreeing, then you haven't gone far enough. Yeah, I need, I want, she's clearly, she was clearly, my sense was that she has an ongoing argument with me. And she finds that um, useful as a way of making sense of the world. Like, it's almost like, I feel like for someone like that, what's, what's going on is she's saying, oh, so that's what people mean when they say something that I disagree with. And even though it doesn't change her mind, it's interesting to her to like to get where that comes from. And maybe six years from now, she does change her mind. But it's interesting you said that she goes to listen to Rush Limbaugh because Rush Limbaugh does that for me. I disagree with everything he says, Mm -hmm. but he is an incredible performer, entertainer, and I like listening to him do his thing, right? I remember, I think it was, it was, Oh, 08, where he was imploring his people, I think he called it Operation Chaos, where he's mm-hmm. imploring his people, register in open states mm-hmm. for Hillary and vote for her so that the Obama-Hillary thing will go on longer and longer and screw up the Democrats. And I'm like, that is, that is counter to what democracy should be about. Yeah. That is horrible. You're weaponizing the voting yeah. system. And yet, this is great radio. And I hate you for proposing this. And I know that this is not happening. So you're claiming it's happening. It's clearly not happening because he's he beat her like 13 contests in a row. So clearly, but but this is great radio. Yeah. And yeah. I and I hate everything you say. And I still listen. Yeah. Yeah. I read the. One and of it's the, but it's hard to occupy that space as the creator because you want to be liked. And you uh-huh. and Sterns and I, I'm like. I'm not concerned with you liking me. I want you to listen to me. Yeah. If you don't like me, that's okay. I don't, I don't get hung up on, I had this funny thing the other day. I went on the Bill Simmons podcast and I had this totally ludicrous thing that I wanted to argue about, which was, I was like, could a basketball team made up of Nigerians, an all-time basketball team made up of Nigerians, be the greatest basketball team of all time? And then I amended it <laughs> I amended it in two ways. I said, all right, I'm going to have two uh, corollaries. One is I'm going to add West Indians because all West Indians, not all of them, but like I'm, I'm Jamaican. Where are, my, where are my people from? We're from Nigeria originally. Like I'm Igbo, right? Most Jamaicans came yes, from Nigeria. Yes. Really? So I, add West, so I add the Caribbean and then I said, and just for fun, let's also add um, the rest of Southern Africa. And then 
So it's like, I construct this team. It's totally ridiculous. Yeah, Africa it's, it's just, and the Caribbean. So basically I say, can Africa and the Caribbean put together an all-time team? It's better than an African-American team, a Euro team, and a white American team. Maybe. It's just, it's, the third one, maybe. The no, first no, no. two, no. No, the answer is yes. I, we don't have time to do this, but I will convince you. I can't convince you of this. That Africa and the Caribbean in basketball. Yeah, all-time team. And also, you you qualify by Did you virtue. Say Africa or Nigeria? Well, I started. I start with Nigeria. So now and you then give add, yourself all of Africa. No, not all. I'm I'm only adding. I added Southern Africa because I want to have Steve Nash and Joel Embiid on my team. <laughs> Wait, Steve Nash born in Johannesburg. He's Canadian. No, my rule is that you are you qualify by virtue of your parents' place of birth. So I get all of. All so right. So Clay you're taking Thompson. Steve Nash. Who Clay, else? Clay Thompson. A key, a, what, really? He's from. Dad's Africa? Bahamian. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. From. Oh, you're taking Tim Duncan. <clears throat> Tim Duncan and Hakeem Olajuwon. Hakeem, Joel Embiid, Giannis, uh, Clay. Andre Iguodala, Victor Oladipo. Andre Iguodala, where's he from? Nigeria. Okay. He's full on Nigeria. He's, okay. he's okay. a real deal. Okay. Uh, and uh, Steve Nash. I got a backcourt of Nash and Thompson. I got a frontcourt of Duncan, Embiid, Giannis, Patrick. Well, Patrick Giannis Ewing. Giannis is your forward, right? right. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Patrick. He's right from the islands, right, this, right, right. right. This, really team from the islands. this team is insane. Well, Patrick's coming off the bench, but. Patrick's coming off the bench, doesn't matter. But. Hakeem. Giannis and but Embiid you're but you're but but the other team has Le, LeBron, Kobe, yeah, but you can't and Michael. I know, just for starters, I just, know. and Steph Curry, I, just for starters, I know. Just, and Will Chamberlain yeah. and Bill Russell. Just just try. Go ahead. That's just, the African American team. Just try playing LeBron, Jordan. And oh, Kobe now, oh, no, no. oh, now you're doing that thing? Oh, I'm oh, totally they doing that thing. They can't play together? They can't and play Isaiah together. Thomas can't come it's in and team. Magic Johnson can't come in and can iron I, this out? Can I My remind African you? My African-American team is crushing your African-American team. <laughs> no, 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 no. Your African, can I remind you? It's, Afro a, it's a team. We're crushing it's a team, you. It's a team sport. they got to play together. You cannot oh put Jordan and LeBron. I have a dream team. I have a dream team. You can't put Jordan and LeBron and Kobe on the court at the same time? Are you out of your mind? Oh my God. You, well, you have all centers. You have, you have only, you only named one forward. You have a, you have guards and a bunch of centers. You got a problem with that? I do, because you don't, <laughs> well, but that doesn't what? fit the modern game. You have nobody in the no, middle. No, no, right? no, no, Who on your team, who are you putting Giannis on LeBron? And then who's covering Jordan? And who's covering Steph? I got, oh, you got Clay I got, covering Steph. I got Clay and Andre Iguodala, who in their day are two of the greatest lockdown defenders of the last 25 years in the, in the NBA. I got uh, Clay and Nash, who are two of the greatest pure outside shooters. And I have arguably the greatest defensive front court in the history of basketball. I have Giannis, Hakeem, Patrick, I, Embiid. I mean, I, I have Wilt. Bill Russell, Shaq. I know, it's close. My point is, it's I don't an think with African American, it's not close. Wait, 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 wait. If I had, if I was restricted to white <laughs> Americans, then maybe, maybe. But here's my point. So I do this long, ludicrous. Bill, right. It's ludicrous, right? This argument is ludicrous. Fun. It's, it's fun, fun, but it's ludicrous. And you're right. I'm wrong. But so what? It's so fun. There are people who, who took offense. It's like, <laughs> how on earth? What is? Like, they were like, oh, you know, you can't like. You know, first of all, of all the things to get worked up about in 2018 in America, yeah. about race, this well, is the thing you're upset about. I'm sure <laughs> that you upset a lot of people with your point on football. 
when you're saying that college football should be eliminated, it's yeah. too physically dangerous, yeah. and you weren't even really making a should point. You were making like a, this will happen that soon enough the middle class will abandon football. It's already happening. And, and like, like boxing, it will be only working class people who have no other option will even try football. I'm sure a lot of people were furious about that. People got to, but that's, that's a different, that's a very, very serious, we have to deal with the fact, I think, in this country that um, you know, the, late, the latest study just came out yesterday. We're now yes. looking at CTE. Yes. We now think among a retired NFL players, the instance of CTE is between 10 and 20%, and that might be a low estimate. Oh, I thought it was, I thought it was 99%. No, so no, no. CTE, CTE, like everybody. No, every, it's not everybody. Everybody, everyone, everybody everyone that we have done an autopsy on yeah. has had it. But yeah. no, they're talking about of everyone who's ever played. Yes, at any uh, level. The the. The professional game, we think as many as twenty percent of them have. Oh, that sounds this. incredibly low to me. Oh. I always thought it was it was no, it was that's high. That's higher than the number of black people who voted for Obama. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like off the charts. Like, I mean, I, I love mean, that. I love that. That's your that is your go to metaphor for <laughs> a really really large almost, number. Almost <laughs> almost everybody. Well, well, the really really good, the number of, the percentage of black women who voted for Obama like higher than that. What could be higher than one hundred percent? Did more black women than black men vote for? Oh, Obama? absolutely. Black women are the core of the Democratic Party. Black women. Are more who are these black men who didn't vote for Obama? I, I don't know. I don't know. Can you someone saw, explain you to those? With, can someone explain to those people? It's not getting any better than this. Like no, it's not. Well, well you saw the same differential with Trump. There's about a six oh, right. to nine percent difference between what black women will do vis-a-vis yeah. Trump and what black men will do. There's always Jim Brown out. There. Jim Brown and Kanye out Ugh. pulling the Republican lever. Ugh, don't get me started. Wait, you think that you can beat LeBron <laughs> in a mile race? Are you crazy? I don't think I can beat him, but I think that's why I wanted to race him. Everyone said, oh, you'll beat him. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not beating him. LeBron is going to thrash me, but that's why this is interesting. So LeBron can prove to us that he may be 6'9", and what is he, 240, 230, But he is an athlete. Everyone says he's too big to run. No, no, he's not. Well, he's a unique specialist. You might be Joel Embiid. <laughs> Although Joel, Joel goes running, he, he goes out. He's he's out there running the streets the, of Philadelphia. The, <laughs> the big guys, general. I mean, that's part of LeBron's genius that he has the physicality of a smaller man. Generally, you get taller and you get yeah. stiffer. Oh and no, he's there's a there's an, uh, a YouTube video of him doing a workout. This is what prompted this whole discussion. A workout of him. Uh, he's doing a workout in the gym where he's he runs the length of the court, dunks. And then immediately runs, runs back. Runs. You saw this video. Six times. Yeah. Back and like, forth. I run, saw that. And like, yeah. this, that guy can run. And that's the end of practice. He can run like a four, 30 miles. But you like remind that. me of that moment. You watch Atlanta, Donald Glover's show. Oh, yeah. When, when he lines up against Michael Vick and he thinks he's going to win. And the next you see him in the car, he's all pissed off. And she's like, it's Michael Vick. <laughs> like, what the, like, you weren't beating Michael. He really, he's like, really thought he was going to beat Michael Vick. <laughs> um... Are you an introvert or an extrovert or both? I am an introvert. But you have this public persona that just rocks and everybody loves. And I do speeches. I do TV. I'm, I can do I can do podcasts. But that's very anything. consistent with being an introvert. So <clears throat> this is my speaking for the day. And then I'm, I will, I'm not going to be charming probably for another couple of weeks after this. You, okay. You've used it all up. Uh, no, I'm a... Uh, no, I, it's consistent. It's the only difference, the difference between an introvert and extrovert is merely where it's not the capacity to be outgoing. It is whether being outgoing is a drain on your energy mm. or gives you energy. 
Bill Clinton derives energy from, from the crowd, yes. I, this is a drain. Not, not that I, dis, I you dislike it. you do a speech it. that's a drain? Yeah, then I, then I need to go and be quiet for, um, it's not that it's not enjoyable. I enjoy, sure. I enjoy social interactions, but they are taxing. Yeah, um, interesting, because I mean, I love it. Well, I feel think much more. You know, it's like, oh yeah. my God, they liked it. They clap. I get into the thing of like, I'm doing a speech and there's like, you know, everybody's into it. And they're laughing, they're clapping. There's one person who's not. And now I'm like, why am I not reaching her? What's the problem? I start giving the speech to her because I'm like, I want her to be yeah. happy. And then later she's like, yeah, I'm ha I was happy. It's just, it's just my resting face. Yeah. But like, yeah. oh my God, I had to like bring you back in. Oh my God. Um, you talk about holding readers in the masterclass. Which is something that writers need to know. Like, yeah. What do, what do you mean? How do you how do you do that? You mean like how I drive you through the entire piece, and you don't sort of like get a part of it and you leave, but like. It's yeah, a, it's about. <clears throat> uh, I mean, it's just that's something that comes from newspaper writing that I'm uh, obsessed with the idea that I'm going to be abandoned by the reader, and so that's about making sure that you there's enough movement in the piece that they have to keep reading. Otherwise, like. You can't tell you can't tell them every, everything that they need to know at the very beginning. Otherwise, they'll bail on you. So you have to. They have to have a sense that the story is unfolding and it's going to take them in unexpected places. And that's sort of an obvious point. But it's easy. There's a nervousness, particularly among yep. no, novice writers, and they want to they they want to lay all their cards on the table. Like, yeah. don't lay your cards. Harder to do in nonfiction than fiction, right? Fiction seems to lend itself to. I'm going to take a while to lay this yeah, all out. Yeah. But in nonfiction, it seems like you received the information as a writer. You said, here's the situation. Let me talk about it. But then when you got to let me talk about it, the reader's like, well, you already gave me the situation. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. No, and, it's, it's it's harder to... So to, it's fictional? Yeah, it is applying, I think, I think kind of narrative techniques to... Uh, fictional narrative techniques to nonfiction writing. That's sort of the thing that... <clears throat> To go back to my heroes, you know, Janet Malcolm and Michael Lewis, those kinds of people, they do that very naturally, that they're, Janet Malcolm, especially, you just know there's a surprise coming, right? You you know, you cannot read the first chapter of a Janet Malcolm book and know where it's headed. It's yeah. just impossible. Yeah. So, all right, give me some advice for the writers who are listening. How can they be better writers? What do you want to see younger folks and folks coming up behind you do more of and less of? Uh, take time. Make sure you give yourself enough time to write properly. Um, you mean just time at the computer with the piece? Mm -hmm. uh, rehearse your arguments on people, your stories on people. Interesting. Uh, what do you mean? When you're writing something, you need to bore your, you need to drive your friends to distraction. You need to talk, you need to, if you can't explain what you're writing about to your best friend, you can't, the piece isn't going to work. And if they tune out halfway through, you have a problem. They love you, and you're telling it to them straight, and if they're checking their phone, like at minute five, you need to rethink. You're not telling the story properly. You're not telling the story properly. And you'll learn, I do that a lot. I, <clears throat> you know, I often give talks about the thing that I'm, I give a, I try out an argument that I'm working on in a talk, and I just see, how, what are they, are they buying it? Are they responding, what are they responding to? What are the questions about, you know? That kind of rehearsal is a really, really important um, learning tool, I think, for uh, um, for effective writing. I've seen that with my next book in that um, 
I'm writing a book about male infidelity, oh, yeah. why married men yeah. cheat on their wives. And I have a way of talking about it that people are like, oh my God, I can't wait to read this. And I'm like, clearly this is a good mm -hmm. idea because you're telling it in a way that people are like, like, if I go to dinner with people, I try to wait until like dessert to bring this up because once I start talking about it, people don't want to talk about anything else. Yeah. Which, you know, so, so I see like the friend test, it's definitely passing the friend test. Yeah, it's a crucial. Yeah. Is there another plank in that? In this, in in your list for folks, uh, I'm trying to think, that <clears throat> um, maybe the last one will be it's as useful to think horizontally as vertic vertically. In other words, analogies are really, really. I can ask two questions. If I'm, if I'm doing a profile of you, I can. There's two ways I can take it. I can go deeper and deeper into you. What it more facts about your life, stories, honor stories that happened a long time ago. Or I can go sideways and I can say, um, who are people who had lives like yours? Mm. Or who are people who followed a similar trajectory to yours but who went in another direction? Or do you know what I'm saying? Like there's another, there's, there's, there are people who are parallel to you and then there's, right. there's deep, you and I'm I'm interested in both. Maybe even more interested in parallel. You know, I could I can imagine writing a profile of you in which you don't barely figure at all, but we could actually really understand you well simply talking about the universe around you. Interesting. Um, that you know that and I I'm always I think that's the under um, uh, the under you underutilized way of telling a story is to is to use the kind of um, horizontal approach as opposed to the vertical approach. So what's your like morning self-talk like? Like when you're waking up, like are you positive? Are you feeding yourself like, you know, you can do it? Or are you sort of like have to, are you like down on yourself? Or like what, what, is, what is the internal no, self-talk? No, I'm usually, I don't really have a, I'm, I, I wake up every morning wanting to get on with it and like, um, uh, mornings are always a. Usually, my morning is spent in solitude, writing or reading, and that's just such a lovely, rare thing that I enjoy. I'm, I always wake up. Do you like wake up like I'm excited to get back to the thing, the the book, the podcast, the yeah. essay, oh, whatever yeah, yeah. it is? I love. I mean, I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it. I mean, I tend to find like I'll work on it until like I am about to fall asleep, and then wake up like, okay, so come on, let's get back to it. Yeah, yeah. Is, is it no, like I that? Have, I have a little bit of that. What's your um? Some of your plans and dreams for the next five years. Where do you want to go? What do you want to be? Uh, <clears throat> that's a good question. I don't really know. Uh, I don't have a kind of, I don't, I never think about the future like that. Really? Yeah. I don't. You have run your business as a writer and a public person in an exemplary way. I mean, like if we're going to do like a case study for like how to run you as a business, like I would definitely talk about you and look how he developed and expanded. And, and you're like, this just happened. Yeah. I don't, I, my thing is you can't tell the, you can't forecast the future. All you can do is respond to opportunities as they, so I'm not, you know, I really, really, really have enjoyed podcasting. I never planned to go into it. Some friend of mine said, do you want to do a podcast with me, with my company? And I was like, okay. And then I tried it. And it worked, but I never, you know, I don't, it wasn't any master plan. It was just like, I think you try things. I've tried writing 
screenplays doesn't work. So I don't do that anymore. Uh, I've, you know, I just kind of like, I think that the problem, you don't want to kind of, I, I don't want to foreclose options by having too, um, you know, clear a path. And also, I just don't, none of us know what's going to happen. You mm. know, um, how do you, how do you know you're going to write about a book about Sandra Bland until Sandra Bland happens? Sure. So it's like, what's the point of, I can't plan out what my next book is because I don't know that what's going to happen in the world. Um, so that's why I kind of like, I resist that sort of. I feel lost thing. without a plan. Even if, I, even if I deviate from the plan after the first step, if I don't have some plan, yeah. then I'm like, what am I doing? I'm lost. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't need a plan. Sounds very, it's very Jamaican. Like, you know. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little, it's soon, a little Jamaican. Soon come. That's right. Soon come. Soon come. <laughs> Although, I, Jamaicans, I think, sometimes overestimate their, beneath that, um, you know, they're also crazy and frenetic and, you know, in their own kind of special way, Indeed. in my experience anyway. What's your superpower? <clears throat> I don't know if I have a superpower. Do I have a superpower? You uh, seem to. Uh, I, I have a pretty good, I have my dad's work ethic. My dad had a great work ethic. I, I have his, I can sit for quite happily for many hours um, and not be distracted and, you know, waste time. And I'm not a, I have, I have some, there's a German word called, I'm going to mispronounce it, Zeitfleisch, which means, um, iron butt <laughs> means you can sit forever. I have Zeitfleisch. <laughs> <laughs> iron butt. The kids would laugh so hard at that. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's what it is, right? If you can just sit at the desk mm. and keep going and not give up, then yeah, you can do. You can get, you can accomplish an awful lot just by um, being um, focused and and efficient. Thanks so much to Malcolm for an awesome interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. 